Welcome to Theories of the Third Kind. Welcome to Theories of the Third Kind. My name is Aaron, and I'm one of your hosts. There are two other hosts that are joining me today, of course. Daniel Sun. Yo, guys. And Anna. Hey, everyone. So before we start today's episode, I just want to say, like always, we do not run any ads on this show or take any money from any corporations. So if you would like to help us out, then there's a few ways that you can do that. One of the ways is Patreon. For only $5 a month, which is 16 cents a day, you can sign up to our Patreon and get an extra episode each week. These Patreon episodes are exclusive to members only. Today, we released a Patreon-exclusive episode, which is over the 1985 Philadelphia bombing, where police officers bombed a local neighborhood in Philadelphia. Also, we have several more episodes already locked and loaded for your listening pleasure, such as the Nexium Cult, Dancing Israelis, Secret Nazi Space Program, Disney Darkness, Isaac Cappy, McMartin's Satanic Preschool, Clinton Body Count, FEMA, and much more which you get access to, including all past episodes, for five bucks a month. Another way to support the show is through our merchandise. Just teleport on over to our website, theoriesofthethirdkind.com, and click on the shop button. Then you'll see all the merchandise that we have for sale. We have t-shirts, hats, and all that good stuff. I just wanted to say that the money that we get from Patreon and the merchandise goes to bettering the show. We know that things are tough out there right now, so if you can't afford a shirt or a Patreon membership, but you want to help us out, then you could leave us a written review on iTunes and that helps us out a ton. If you don't want to leave one though, that's fine. We just want you guys, girls, aliens, reptilians, Bigfoot, Sasquatches, Chupacabras, Ghosts, Illuminati members, underground lizard people, whoever or whatever you are, to enjoy the show. Also, one last thing. If any of you would like to reach out to us, then you can shoot us a message on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Or you can go to our website, theoriesofthethirdkind.com, and click on the contact button. And there you will find our email addresses. Also, on our site, you can click the voicemail button and leave us a voicemail anonymously with your phone, and we will play it at the end of the show each week. So today's episode is the Las Vegas shooting. How this episode will go today is that we'll first cover a quick overview of what the Las Vegas shooting was. And then we'll hop into Stephen Paddock and then go into the timeline of the event and what happened during the shooting, and then the investigation and motive, and then we will roll into strange facts and findings and wrap it all up with theories. So with that being said, let's get into today's episode. Las Vegas on October 1st, 2017, there was a country music festival taking place called Route 91. It was the last day of a three-day music festival that over 22,000 people came to enjoy. However, that joy would not last long. Just after 10 p.m. that night, as festival goers were enjoying Jason Aldean, sounds of what individuals thought were fireworks started to ring out. What started off as single pops eventually became long bursts of machine gun-like fire. Many tried to run and take covers. Some ran for the exits, others hid under the stage, but some just stood frozen in shock as the bullets rained down from the hotel that was overlooking the festival. The high up hotel room and the open venue space below gave a vantage point for the shooter, who would later be identified as Stephen Paddock. 
This became the deadliest mass shooting by lone shooter in U.S. history. Now, before we get into the timeline of the event, let's first briefly go over who Stephen Paddock was. Stephen Paddock was born on April 9th of 1953 in Clinton, Iowa. The majority of his childhood, though, was spent in Tucson, Arizona, with his three other siblings. At the age of seven, Paddock's father was arrested by the FBI, and from then on, Stephen was raised by a single mother. Due to this, his family became very poor. This caused Stephen to prioritize himself on being self-reliant and self-sustaining. He graduated from high school in 1971 and went on to California State University, where in 1977, he graduated with a degree in business administration. From 1976 to 1978, Stephen worked as a letter carrier for the U.S. Postal Service. He left the Postal Service and then began working for the IRS as an internal auditor up until 1984. Then a year later, in 1985, he accepted a position as an internal auditor for the Defense Contract Audit Agency. And then one year after that, in 86, that company he worked for merged to form the company Lockheed Martin. Shortly after that, Stephen left his job at Lockheed Martin and started a real estate business with his brother, Eric. They began buying and refurbishing properties in economically depressed areas around Los Angeles. According to property records, in 1987, Stephen Paddock purchased a 30-unit building in Los Angeles. He started to invest into more properties in California, which included at least six multifamily residences. These purchases would eventually pay off, as he would often more than double his money on his real estate investments. Among his most profitable investments was an apartment complex that he purchased in 2004. This complex gave him an annual income of more than $500,000. When looking in the IRS records, they also show that in 2012, Stephen Paddock sold a 110 apartment unit building in Mesquite for $8.3 million. And in 2015, he sold an additional apartment complex for around $5 million and decided to retire. Stephen had been married and divorced twice. The first marriage was from 1977 to 1979, and the second one was from 1985 to 1990. He had no children and was also said to have no political or religious affiliations of any kind. His only recorded interaction with law enforcement was a minor traffic citation in which he settled in court. Stephen owned two airplanes and even had a pilot's license. He also had multiple homes, one in California, one in Texas, and one in Nevada. Because Stephen liked to gamble, he spent the majority of his time in Nevada. However, the time wasn't spent at his home. It would be at the casinos gambling for days at a time. Stephen was in good standing with a lot of the MGM properties including the owner of the Mandalay Bay Casino. He even had a $100,000 credit limit at the casino, but never used the full amount. Now, even though he had a high credit limit, he was not well known among high-stakes gamblers in Las Vegas and wasn't even considered a high roller by the casinos. What Stephen usually played at the casinos was video poker, which he had been playing for over 25 years. He usually gambled after dark and slept during the day. At one of the casinos is where he would meet his girlfriend, Mary Lou Danley, which we will discuss more about her later on. Something else worth mentioning here before we get into the timeline is Stephen's collection of guns. He began collecting guns in 1982 
It started off as just a hobby for him, but after his retirement, he seemed to really get into it. From 1982 to September 2016, he had only purchased 29 firearms. However, between October 2016 and September 28th of 2017, he purchased 55 firearms, majority of them rifles. So now that we have a little bit of that backstory on Stephen Paddock, we're going to go over the timeline of events that happened in September of 2017. So on September 9th of 2017, Paddock reserved a room at the Mandalay Bay Hotel for a check-in date of September 25th and then to leave on October 2nd. Like we had talked about earlier, Stephen was no stranger to this hotel. This is where he had the $100,000 credit limit and would often come to play those video poker games. So now on September 25th, Stephen checks into the hotel. He rolls one bag to his room himself and a bellman uses a luggage cart to bring up four other bags. Stephen then leaves and returns to his home in Mesquite, Nevada. The next day on September 26th, Stephen wires $50,000 to a bank account in the Philippines, where his girlfriend Mary Lou Danley is visiting family. He then returns to Las Vegas and visits a pair of casino hotels before returning to the Mandalay Bay, where he brings another six suitcases on a luggage cart, as well as another rolling suitcase to his room. He then begins gambling at the hotel overnight and into the next morning. So then on September 27th, Stephen goes to the front desk of the hotel that he's staying at and insists on relocating to another room. He states that he wants a better view. He's given a high-level suite with two adjoining rooms that are overlooking the 15-acre site of the Route 91 festival. That night, he drives back to Mesquite and buys luggage, razor blades, and fake flowers, also a vase and a styrofoam ball at Walmart. Those are some weird things to buy. Yeah. (laughs) Or it's a really good date night idea. Yeah. All right. So on September 28th, Stephen buys a 308 bolt action rifle from a gun store in Mesquite and wire transfers an additional $50,000 to an account in the Philippines. Now, this is the account that is Mary Lou Danley's account. Paddock also goes to a gun range before returning to Las Vegas. He arrives back to his hotel and brings in two rolling suitcases and a laptop bag to his Mandalay Bay room. He then gambles again for more than six hours until early the next morning. On September 29th, Stephen went down to the hotel's front desk and booked an additional room. Now this room is connected to his, and he puts it under his girlfriend's name, which is Mary Lou Danley. He then spends the rest of the day in his room. So then on the next morning of September 30th, Stephen places a do not disturb sign on his rooms. He then drives to Mesquite and then returns to his Mandalay Bay suite with four more suitcases that he takes up to his room. So now we are on the day of the attack, October 1st, 2017. Early in the morning, Steve goes and gambles for four hours. He then brings up two more rolling suitcases to his room. Later that day, he orders room service. They bring his food up to him on a rolling cart. Shortly after that is when Steven sets up three cameras. One of the cameras is placed on the peephole of his room's door. The other two cameras are placed in the hallway. One of them he set on the service cart from earlier that morning, which was just outside the adjoining room's hallway door. Stephen then places a L bracket 
to the door that leads to the emergency stairwell, which was right by his room. Officials believe that he did this so no one was able to use that door to get to him without having to break through it first. At 9.36 p.m., Stephen deadbolts the door to one of his rooms. Then 10 minutes later, he deadbolts his other door. Around this time, security guard of the hotel, Jesus Campos, is doing his last rounds of his walkthrough for that night. As he travels up the emergency stairwell checking the doors, he notices that the door to floor 32 is blocked and will not open. He takes note and continues on with his walkthroughs. 14 minutes later, at 10 p.m., security guard gets an alert of an open door alarm in a guest room that is located on the 32nd floor, which is the same floor and right down the hall from Stephen Paddock's suite. Security guard Campos decides to take the elevator to the 32nd floor to investigate. During his investigation, Campos checks the stairwell door that blocked his entry to the floor minutes earlier. He discovers that it has been fastened closed with an L bracket. Four minutes later, at 10.04 p.m., Campos calls security dispatch to report the blocked door. His call is routed to the facility's maintenance department. They send out maintenance engineer Stephen Shuck to go to the 32nd floor to look at the L bracket. At 10.05 p.m., Stephen Paddock uses either a hammer or a sledgehammer to break out two windows in his room. He then fires two initial shots at the Route 91 music festival that is being held across the street. He continues firing. At this time, the security guard, Campos, hears what he describes as rapid drilling noises. Stephen looks at his security camera and notices Campos standing in the hallway. Stephen then starts shooting through his door and down the hallway at Campos, hitting the security guard in the leg. Campos is unarmed and takes cover. He then radios a hotel dispatcher for help. I shot like 200 rounds. 200 rounds to that door and only one, one hit him. A lot of strange facts, you know. A lot of strange things happening in this thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you look at where his door was, it's literally right in the middle of the hallway looking straight down. If he was there, you I mean, even blind firing through a door just straight down the hallway. Yeah. Just saying. Anyways. Stephen then turns his attention back to the crowd below and resumes firing hundreds of rounds at the concertgoers. At this time, it is 10.07 p.m. and two Las Vegas police officers were already in the building responding to a different call. The police officers in the building hear the shots and head upstairs to try and find the source of the gunshots. Two armed Mandalay Bay security guards join the police officers. Over the next two minutes, Stephen Paddock shoots hundreds of rounds into the crown down below. He then takes several pot shots at the jet fuel storage tanks at the nearby airport, striking them twice, but not igniting the fuel. Then he resumes firing on the concert crowd. So then at 10.10, the building engineer arrives on the 32nd floor. Campos yells at him to take cover. Stephen notices this and then begins firing down the hall again for a few seconds and then returns to firing at the concert crowd. Shuck then radios to the hotel dispatch to send police officers to the 32nd floor. Now at 10.12, the two police officers and the two armed Mandalay Bay security officers that were already on their way up to the 32nd floor, arrive on the 31st floor, one floor below where Stevens at. Three minutes later at 10.15, Paddock fires his final shots at the concertgoers. Now at 10.16, the two police officers on the 31st floor enter the stairwell outside that 32nd floor hallway, but they decide to wait for backup and decide not to confront Steven. Ten minutes later, at 10.26, Eight additional officers arrive on the 32nd floor. As they slowly began to move down the hallway of the 32nd floor, they spot the service cart, which had a camera on it. 
They were weary of this cart and thought it might have been rigged with an IED or some sort of explosive. So as they made their way toward it, they were clearing out rooms, checking for anybody that could be injured in the process. So then at 1040, officers asked for permission from lead officers on the scene if they could enter Paddock's room. They were told to wait for SWAT teams. This decision was made because Stephen had stopped firing at this time. So now at 1057, eight additional officers arrive in the stairwell at the opposite end of the hallway nearest to Stephen's room. Remember, this was the stairwell that Stephen had placed that L bracket on so that they had to break it to get inside. So then at 1120, officers breach Stephen's room with an explosive charge and find Paddock on the ground dead. They also noticed the adjoining door to the other room was sealed off as well. So then at 1126, the officers breached the adjoining door to Stephen's second room. They entered that room and began searching. One police officer accidentally fires three rounds while in the room. The police announced that no one else was found and they announced that the suspect was down. That's a little suspicious, that three-round burst. Yeah. But yeah. I guess we'll kind of get into that a little later. But in total, 60 people died and 867 were injured. Stephen Paddock had fired a total of 1,058 rounds from 15 firearms. 1,049 of those rounds were from 12 AR-15-style rifles, 8 from 2 AR-10-style rifles, and the last round was from a Smith & Wesson revolver that he used to kill himself. So that is the official story and the official timeline. I guess let's go into what was found in the room and during the investigation before we hop into strange facts and findings, because there is quite a bit of weird strange facts and findings. Oh, definitely. But not only in the strange facts and findings, but in the room and what was found during the investigation of it. So on October 4th, three days after the shooting, Clark County Sheriff Joe Lombardo held a press conference. The sheriff stated that there was evidence that Stephen Paddock intended to escape the scene and that he may have had assistance from an accomplice. The sheriff also said that the investigators searched Paddock's room and found a bulletproof vest and a breathing apparatus, but neither of them were used by Paddock. He also said that, quote, we have not determined his motive. No links have been identified to any hate groups, terrorist groups, or ideologies. And he, as in Stephen Paddock, did not record a reason for his actions. During the investigation by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, they determined that the firearms found in his hotel room, along with more guns found in his homes, had been legally purchased in Nevada, California, Texas, and Utah. Now, they did find a handwritten note in the room which indicated that Stephen Paddock had been calculating the distance, wind, and the trajectory from his 32nd floor hotel suite. They also found in the trunk of Stephen's Hyundai Tucson SUV an additional 1,600 rounds of ammunition and 50 pounds of tannerite, which if you don't know what tannerite is, it's a binary explosive used to make explosive targets at gun ranges. Yeah. So uh, on August 3rd, 2018, the same Las Vegas sheriff, Joe Lombardo, the one who held a press conference three days after the shooting, he decided to hold another one to discuss their final findings. Now, this was almost a year later after the shooting. During this press conference of the final uh, findings, the sheriff this time said that the 10-month investigation 
had revealed no evidence of conspiracy or a second gunman, and that the gunman's motive had not been determined. So that was the investigation findings. And they're a little weird, especially the breathing apparatus and stuff like that, which, I mean, it gets just gets more weird and more suspicious whenever we start digging into this. There is a ton of strange facts and findings, which uh, we're going to hop into, I guess, right now. So uh, let's go ahead and roll into those. To start off the strange facts and findings, we're going to go over a few key members of the Stephen Paddock's family. The first person we are going to start off with is his father. Benjamin Paddock Jr. was Stephen Paddock's father, but like we talked about earlier, he wasn't in Stephen's life. In 1960, at the age of 34, Benjamin Paddock was arrested for robbing a bank in Phoenix. During his arrest, he was also charged with two additional bank robberies, one earlier that year and one in 1959. He was sentenced to 20 years in prison and placed in the Federal Correctional Institution in Latuna, Texas. On December 31, 1968, after serving eight years, Benjamin Paddock escaped from prison and spent 10 years on the run. He was placed on the FBI Most Wanted Fugitives list, which we have a poster of, and on it, the FBI states, diagnosed as psychopathic, armed, and very dangerous. Yeah, we'll post that FBI Most Wanted list up on our site, so you can go to Theories of the Third Kind, click on episode, and you can see this image of him. Literally in the wanted poster, he looks like he gives zero fucks. Just saying. Yeah. He looks a lot like his, well, of course, it's his father. Never mind. I'm not going to. Never mind. (laughs) All right. So after escaping prison, Benjamin Paddock moved to Oregon, where he changed his identity to Bruce Warner Erickson. In Oregon, he worked as a contract trucker and at a drug abuse rehabilitation center. In September 1977, he decided to open a bingo parlor for the Center for Education Reform, which was a nonprofit organization based in Eugene, Oregon. When he applied for a license to open the bingo parlor, He was investigated by Springfield Police and the State Attorney's General Office. Both of them failed to uncover that he wasn't Bruce Erickson, but actually Benjamin Paddock, an escaped felon on the FBI Most Wanted list. The dude had to have some balls to know that that he was going to get investigated by police and the state attorney and he was an FBI felon. Mm -hmm. That's when you know he was like, I just, I got away with it. I will never be found. He acts like a mafia member. Dude, I was going to like say that because like, you know, he robbed a bank, so he must have had money stashed somewhere. So he must have paid someone some good amount of money to help create a new identity for him, to, for him to be able to get away with that shit. Yeah. Hey, maybe they added on to his chin or something. I don't know. Just adding a little bit to his chin will change his identity big time. <laughs> like me, myself, and Irene, when he gets his, ch- Jim Carrey gets his chin redone. He gets like a butt chin. Uh, your chin looks like an yeah. ass. <laughs> oh, God. That movie was hilarious. It was. Do y'all want me to just go ahead and finish up Benjamin? Yeah, just that little part. All right. According to FBI records, Benjamin Paddock was captured by officers on September 6, 1978. He spent a year in custody before being released on parole. He returned to Oregon where he was charged with racketeering, but he avoided jail by paying a civil fine of $623,000. wonder where he got that money from. Benjamin Paddock eventually settled in Texas where he lived until he died of a heart attack in 1998. I got so many questions. He evaded the police, and the, or the FBI and the police, for so long. For over 10 years. Opened up his own bingo parlor, and then he got arrested by the FBI, but only spent a year in prison, was, and then was released on parole. And then was charged with racketeering, but was able to pay $623,000. Who has $623,000? How did he earn Especially so much money? back then. Yeah. yeah and, who, and who lets a guy yeah. out on parole after he's been... He escaped prison for over 10 years, 
goes in for one and then, oh, man, you've been good. You didn't escape again. We'll let you out on parole. That dude, he probably made a deal with the FBI or CIA or something. He's not the only one. Yeah. As we keep going into the family members, even Stephen himself, there's a bit of suspicion about this family, at least to me. Yeah, to me as well. You want to cover the next person? Yeah, we'll go over his brother Eric now. The day after the shooting, Eric was swarmed in his driveway by the media. And we actually have a clip of that happening. So we're going to play that real quick. I, I, there's not even anything I can say. I mean, um, <laughs> how do you... I mean, my brother did this. I, this is like it was done, you know, like he shot us. I mean, if he'd have killed my kids, I couldn't be more dumbfounded. I mean, it doesn't... So last... There's nothing. Last communication? There's nothing. After the hurricane? I mean, I can show you the text. He said, you know, how's mom? (laughs) Did you get power? You know, I mean, (laughs) that was it. There's absolutely, we have nothing, like I said, we have nothing for you. I mean, I hope someone finds out, figures out, because I, we'd like to know. Were you a close family? You guys, you must be pretty feeling helpless when the police... we're shocked! I mean, we're just, it's like, you think it's a, you know, except that it came in, all five of my phones in the house and the cells and everything lit up at the same time. You know, I'd have thought it was one of my friends. Joking. Mm-hmm. What, I mean, when you get a phone call that says your brother, you know, just killed a bunch of people. So. I, to give some reason to this. Was he particularly, you know, hyped up about politics nothing. or anything? Like nothing. No religious affiliation, no political affiliation. No, he, he just hung out. And no history of mental illness. Not a bit. When was the last time you spoke to him? Find, find out who he got the machine guns from. I'm... I, where the hell did he get the machine guns? I'm... I mean, he had, you'll find out, he had a couple of guns, but they were all handgun, legal. I mean, he might have had one long gun, but he had them in a safe, and uh, there's no, he had, I I mean, he had no machine guns. I moved his house. I mean, (laughs) there were no machine guns. Well, I think his brother might have threw him under the bus a little bit, or the FBI or somebody. Okay, I, I get it. Some people who don't know guns, they will automatically assume, I guess, I, I mean, I'd, I've never heard of somebody call an AR-style rifle a machine gun. They always call them automatic rifles, which that's not what they stand for. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you want to continue because it gets weirder. Of course. So, after that interview that we just watched, Eric went inside his house and then came back out and gave a second interview. Which was much longer. (laughs) Now, we aren't going to listen to that entire interview. Just a few sections of it. And we're going to play them for you. But as always, we'll link the video that we use. So if you want to watch the whole thing, go ahead. We're just going to cut it down to make it easier for you guys to listen to. So we're going to do that now. If you're going to condemn Steve for being a high-stakes gambler, 
the hotels are not going to be very happy with you. Go find everybody. Go find everybody and interview them who has a card. If you're going to call Steve crazy for gambling the way he gambles, go find everybody at the hotels who has a. Have the hotels tell you everybody who's got a gold. You know he's got the highest level of membership card at, at a lot of these hotels. If these hotels say they don't know Steve, they're lying. But would that transfer indicate some sort of forethought, you think, maybe? Or was that, a, did he routinely send her money of the... My animal? mom? Or Mary Ann? He... The, Mary Lou? I'm sorry. Okay. Steve took care of the people he loved. He helped make me and my family wealthy. I mean, he's the reason I was able to retire. Three years ago when I got really burnt out doing the job I did. I mean, this is the Steve we know, we knew. He's the people he loved, he took care of. He didn't have a lot of friends. You know, he was a private person. There's a story about that he's, oh, he kept his windows, his shades closed, and he didn't talk to me for the first three times he saw me walking in the neighborhood. Wow, that makes him really weird, doesn't it? He was a private guy. That's why you can't find out anything about him. That's why there's no pictures. Is, is he such a weirdo because he didn't have a Facebook page and posted 50,000 damn pictures of himself every day? Who's weird? Can you sympathize that people are maybe grasping for any I'm, sort of explanation? I'm, I'm not, I'm, believe me, I sympathize with everybody who's grasping. Who on this planet do you think is grasping for this understanding more than me? So the one thing I truly hate about this part of it is how CBS puts that headline. You know, yeah, he said it, but it just gives it off in a bad way. Gunn's brother, he made me wealthy. Here's the thing. He sounds like two completely different people. He does. And I think is what happened is, as he went inside, he started watching the news and what they were reporting. He got pissed off and then came back out and said, I'll tell these motherfuckers what they want to hear. And that's why he was out there for like 30 some minutes during that interview. Obviously, he's upset, you know, but a lot of interesting things he said during yeah, that. Yeah, the first interview, you know, he's just, he doesn't know what to say because he can't believe his brother did it. Then the second part of it is he goes inside, watches the news, and everyone's just talking down about his brother, about how he possibly could have been, you know, crazy and all that weird and all that stuff. And, you know, honestly, Steve, Steven sounds like he cared for his family a lot. He helped out his family. And not knowing why his brother did this and shit, I can see where he's probably coming from. It's like, you know, I don't know why he did it, but that doesn't seem like Steven to us. That's a totally different person. You know, I'd be upset about it. But then again, you know, it's he did something terrible. People want answers. Yeah. He says more during the interview, and uh, we aren't going to play that right now because that's a whole other part of the strange facts and findings that we'll get to here in a minute. Um, but do you want to cover his brother, Bruce, or do you want me to? It doesn't matter to me. Yeah, I wouldn't mind doing that. So Stephen's brother, other brother, was called Bruce. Now, on October 25th in 2014, in North Hollywood, Bruce was arrested and charged with possessing more than 600 images of child or youth pornography. Uh, and that was between January 1st and August 30th of 2014, according to the court documents. The material included, quote, 10 or more images of a prepubescent minor or a minor who was under 12 years of age. The police were asked why it took them so long to find Bruce, and their response was that Bruce was an individual who didn't stay in the same place for long, moving from home to home. 
The police also said that Bruce came on the, the police radar after all the images and evidence was found inside a business in the Sun Valley area of the city where he had been a squatter at. On May 30th, 2018, the judge dismissed the case and all of Bruce's charges were dropped. The judge said that the charges were dropped because a witness wasn't available. And the lawyers, a day before this, asked for an extension because the witness couldn't be there in time. And then it was like, oh, nope, we're just going to drop it now. Yeah. So I think this, again, is just further fueling that there's some connection between the Paddock family and the FBI or the government in some way. Just looking at this with the whole, his dad getting let off after being on the FBI most wanted list for 10 years. I don't know what information he had, but he had enough to get himself pretty much off scot-free. And then he has two sons that do criminal acts. Oh, and another thing is that Bruce's dad worked in a juvenile detention center for troubled youth, which also tends to go with people who are trafficking kids because they're the easier ones to hide and get away with. Yeah, you look at the Franklin scandal, which we're going to cover in season three. But the Frank, not well, it's called Franklin Scandal, the Franklin cover up. But there was like a youth center that was involved in flying children to the White House. It's so messed up. You know what this whole Stephen Baddock's family reminds me of, especially his dad? The movie Catch Me If You Can with Leonardo DiCaprio. It's a good movie. Where he was like on the run and they were trying to track him down and they finally catch him. And then at the end of the movie, they make a deal to where he works for them to get out of prison and stuff. Well, that's what they tend to do with these criminals. They make a deal, and then you become an employee of the government. You help us, we'll, uh, we'll, help, we'll help you out. We'll help your family out. Mm-hmm. That's what it seems like to me anyways. Definitely. All right, so our next strange fact finding is the girlfriend. So now we're going to go into Stephen Paddock's girlfriend, Mary Lou Danley, who had dated Stephen Paddock for four years before the mass shooting occurred. Now, there are a lot of strange things that we're going to discuss regarding her. One of the first thing is the large amounts that Stephen wired to her in the Philippines before the shooting occurred. We have an audio clip that we're going to listen to about that, which we will play right now. He would do something No like clue whatsoever. Here's the clue for the day. Someone says he transferred $100,000 to the Philippines. Mary Lou is, you know, they say she's Australian, I guess. But I mean, at the base, she's Filipino, I believe. I mean, I, <laughs> she's Filipino. I mean, I think because she might have... But she has a lot of relatives. I mean, they've been to the Philippines multiple times. I mean, she has relatives. He's, I mean, she went there to visit her family, and he went there and surprised her by showing up there. That was Eric Paddock that we listened to earlier. That was him again during that same interview, that really long one. Dude, that booger comes out, and he f***ing sucks that thing right back in so fast. I saw that, too. I had to make that. I was like, oh, uh, that was terrible. Yeah, big booger comes out of his nose. That's gross. It happens to us, okay? But a lot of people will say that he never wired money, that it was made up. But that right there, that right there is straight from his brother's mouth that he wired the money. I thought it was just in one large sump. I didn't know it was 50000 50000 Yeah, I didn't either. They make it sound like it was 100000 right away. Yeah. We had to include that just oh, definitely. to get the fact out that the money was he sent. did wire the money. Yeah. I mean, Stephen Paddock was a millionaire. Honestly, 100000 to him probably wasn't anything anyways. Because he wanted to make sure that her family was taken care of. Her and her family, I guess. So I guess we move on to the Facebook page? Yep. The next thing we're going to discuss is her Facebook page. 
So months after the attack, there were some court documents that were released that showed she deleted her Facebook account before the police announced the identity of the gunman. Now, Mary Lou was in the Philippines, of course, when the shooting took place on October 1st. She made changes to her Facebook account's privacy and personal settings at 12.30 a.m., about two and a half hours after the first volley of bullets rained down on the people attending a music festival. The first calls about the shooting rolled in at 10.08 p.m., according to police. At 2.46 a.m., her account was deleted entirely. But it wasn't until nearly an hour after that, 3.30 a.m., that police released Paddock's name to the public. Now, that, that is a little weird. Yeah. She got prior knowledge or somebody gave her a heads up. Hey, so she knew. Guarantee it was the hotel because one of the rooms was in her name. Oh, damn. Yeah. Daniel cracking the case. Well, Mary Lou did return back to the United States and voluntarily went to the police to be questioned. During the questioning, she was adamant that she had no prior inclination of Paddock's intentions to conduct the attack. But while investigators obtained a DNA swab from Mary Lou, she spontaneously stated that her fingerprints would likely be found on Paddock's ammunition because she occasionally participated in loading magazines. <laughs> Mary Lou was never charged with anything, and the police and the FBI stated that there is no evidence to suggest criminal involvement by her. Yep. So those are some strange facts about Mary Lou and some of Stephen's close family. So now we're going to move into some other strange facts and findings. Now this one I found pretty weird and it also involves Mary Lou okay but this is an email so when digging through court documents it shows some very weird emails between Mary Lou and Stephen Paddock so on July 6th 2017 Stephen Paddock used the email address centralpark1 at live.com to send an email to the email address centralpark4804 at gmail.com, which belonged to his girlfriend, Mary Lou. The email stated, Try an AR before you buy. We have a huge selection located in the Las Vegas area. Later that day, Mary Lou sent an email back to Stephen from the central4804 Gmail account that read, we have a wide variety of optics and ammunition to try. Stephen then sent a reply email to Mary Lou that said, For a thrill, try out bump fire ARs with a hundred round magazine. That was in court documents. Mm. And that was in July 6, 2017, months before the attack. And there were claims that they had bump stock weapons. Yeah, this was the event that made them get banned. Bump stocks. Yeah. Mm. That email is like so suspicious, man. It's so weird. It is very weird. And I know that they try to say he liked to buy a lot of guns. So, I mean, he had like 100 guns, according to what we were going over earlier. But yet his brother was like, I just moved him into his house and he didn't have all those guns. So, I don't know who to believe on that one, but... Uh, Stephen could have easily not have had his brother take that load over. Who knows? Yeah. Or the CIA supplied them. Those emails almost seem like, even though they're sending it to each other, it seems like they're talking to somebody else or someone else is talking to them because it just doesn't sound right. It doesn't. I was thinking maybe they had a business that Mary Lou and him had a business together and they were trying to come up with ideas to send out to potential buying clients. And he said, oh, how about this line that I'd send to a client? Try an AR before you buy. We have a huge selection located in Las Vegas. And then 
Mary Lou sent an email back, the one that said, we have a wide variety of optics and ammunition to try. It definitely sounds like advertising. Yeah. And then Steven replied back and said, for a thrill, try out Bumpfire's AR with a 100 round magazine. This is just a quick theory. You know, I don't want to dive too deep, but maybe they work together. And that was some type of advertising wording that they were trying to come up with. You know, the cops that raided the room said that it looked like an armory in there. If they had access to all these guns because they did work with somebody else who had their own gun shop or they opened one together and that's how he was just going out, picking some up from his shop, bringing them in and then also spreading himself around in different states so it wasn't obvious that he bought all of his guns from one shop, which would then tie Mary Lou to everything. Yeah. They must have had a third-party person, so I'm interested, because if they're talking back and forth, I don't think that they were the ones who would have owned the shop. I think they were third-partying it. All right, so do we want to go on to the next one, which is prior knowledge? Anna, you want to cover that one for us? Yeah, for sure. So there was a woman at the music festival that was interviewed uh, by a news station. Her name was Brianna. And she stated that about 45 minutes before the shooting, she saw a woman pushing her way forward in the front row of the concert venue. Brianna said that this woman started yelling at people that, and I quote, we're all going to die tonight. And then Brianna then said that the woman was escorted out by security. That's a little suspicious. I hope the FBI went and interviewed her. Well, they probably did and she's missing today. So that's pretty interesting. Yeah, I thought so too. So now we're going to move on to the next strange fact and finding, which is about the planes. So we all know that Stephen Paddock owned two planes, right? Mm-hmm. So we did some digging, and uh, we found some strange stuff. Okay. So when looking into the FAA records, you can go to a website called flightaware.com. They pull their info directly from the FAA. They show a person named Stephen Paddock who has a home address in Henderson, Nevada, in Mesquite, Texas, and owned a, I guess it's pronounced Cirrus, SR-20, which was N5343M, was a serial number of the plane. Now, why do I bring this up? So get this. So when looking at the additional records on flightaware.com, which, like I said earlier, pulls the information straight directly from the FAA, you see that that plane is currently registered to a company named Volant LLC out of Roanoke, Virginia. This LLC is a company that works with the defense intelligence community, but wait, it gets better. So like I said earlier, FlightAware pulls their info straight from the FAA database, right? Well, that plane's registration is listed as active under FlightAware.com. Now, here's where it gets to the interesting part. If you go to FAA.gov, which is the direct FAA database, and you put in the same plane's tail number, that Stephen Paddock owned. The FAA says that the plane is inactive and was last registered to some random guy in San Diego, California, and has a zero mention of Volant LLC or Stephen Paddock. I found out that the FAA database is updated every business day at midnight, which left me to believe two things. Either someone scrubbed the FAA database and forgot or didn't know that FlightAware posted the same info and pulled directly from their site. Or FlightAware, which is a global aviation software and website that uses data services and is used by millions of people, 
is putting out false information in their database, which if that was the case, don't you think that people would stop using it? Mm-hmm. So let me break it down. FAA, main database, flightaware.com, millions of people use it. They pull their info from the FAA. You can find Stephen Paddock's information when you put in his plane and all that stuff on FlightAware, and it shows that it's owned now by a defense intelligence community and it's active. But when you go to the FAA.gov website, it says that it's not active and there's no mention of Stephen Paddock or the defense intelligence community. So it's pretty weird, huh? Yeah. It's pretty weird. And, you know, people like us that want to dive deep into something, looking into that stuff, you know, guaranteed that people are probably like, oh, you own planes, let's look into it. Well, I guess he wasn't flying. The planes don't weren't in the air or anything like that. But he was just like, uh, I guess the little crumb trail right there is gone. And they stopped there. Hmm. So yeah. it definitely cuts people off. It does. Yeah. Is a flight aware government owned? No. Okay. All right. Who wants to go into the next one? Uh, I'll knock that out real quick. So right after the shooting, ISIS came out and claimed that Paddock had converted to Islam six months prior and had carried out the attack for them. The weird thing is, though, when they said this, the FBI almost immediately said that ISIS was lying, that he wasn't a part of the terror group at all. One thing that is odd and worth noting is that Stephen Paddock did take a cruise to the Middle East a year before the shooting. And also, tell me when has the FBI ever denied ISIS making a claim of an attack? I don't ever remember it. Anytime ISIS comes out and says, oh, that was us, it's usually like, okay, yeah, that's them. Mm-hmm. So, another fishy thing there. Yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah. I wonder if they have, like, a spokesperson, and how do they get their information out? ISIS. They go on Twitter. People like Stephen Paddock. <laughs> don't they allow people to, like, come and interview them? Like, bring them, like, some secret location or some shit? That, dude, that's one th- I will go out in the middle of a forest and do a Ouija board. But I will not go in person and interview ISIS. I'll do it. You'd be beheaded. You'd be straight up beheaded, Daniel. Yeah. Just just give me a couple months. Let me grow my beard out and everything. I'll fit it right in. They won't know. Oh, my God. (laughs) All right. So what else do we have for strange facts and findings? We got a couple more until we roll into theories. All right. Officer Hendricks. He and a trainee along with an armed security guard stood their ground in the hallway for about five minutes during the shooting. So... They were able to get up there right when the firing was about to stop. And instead of going in to try to stop and everything, they stood their ground there. And in the interview, he he said that he got he was terrified. He couldn't do anything because he was so scared of all the gunfire that he was afraid that if he moved, he was going to get killed. So they stood their ground and he actually got fired 18 months after this incident because they said that he was not performing his duties as an officer. Hmm. And like a lot of victims even said, like, you know, if this officer would have did his job, he could have saved many lives. But since he got scared and stayed in the hallway, he let people die. Mm. So I guess they needed a fall guy for that. I heard that they radioed down and they told him to wait to go in. That was when the other eight officers came up. All right. Then they're like, y'all just y'all stay there and wait for the SWAT team now, because since he stopped firing. There was no need to rush in there. You know, it's kind of frustrating for this Hendricks guy if he did freeze or whatever. And people are like, if he would have done this, he could have saved thousands or hundreds of lives. You're speculating at that point because that man could have ran into there and been shot immediately and then died. And nobody was saved in that situation. It's easy to look at something and say you'll do something differently. Exactly. 
when I got robbed one time when I worked at a gas station, every single person who came in after that said, oh, I would have grabbed that gun, jumped over that counter and hit him with it. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, you sure you sure would have. It's like all that changes. Even before I got robbed there, my very first day there, I remember saying if somebody came in and tried to rob me, I think I would try to beat him up that when the person came in and robbed me and he stuck a gun to my head i said fucking back your truck up i'll help you load shit on it man as long as you don't shoot me i don't give a shit that's right but yeah i was i was terrified man it's crazy everything changes when you know you're in put in one of those situations i didn't get robbed but you know i, w- I was out hunting and i decided to use my bow for the first time and walking out to where i was gonna go hunt and i just like well shit i gotta piss so of course i put my bow down walking a little bit into the woods can get everything out Start pissing, and I hear a loud. Oh, that's Bigfoot, baby! And I'm just like, he sees it. He sees it. Oh man, that was an interesting sound. So I just keep pissing. Heard it again. I'm just like, man, what the hell's making that sound? And then it hit me. I'm like, oh shit! They did tell me that there was a fucking big bear out here, and now I'm out here with my dick out, fucking pissing, and he's probably gonna run up on me. And what do I have? A dick. Well, I have my dick in my hand, but then I have a bow right by me. I'm just like. If that fucker's running at me, that bow's not stopping him. Brown or black bear? It was a brown bear. So more than likely, they're more scared of me. But if you get into their territory, I mean, you start marking their territory and shit. I don't know what the fuck. There's like the rule. I think it's like black bear. You get big and scream. Brown bear, you curl up in a ball. And then the white bear, which is, you know, the big one. Oh, it's a polar bear. You're just fucked. Yeah, he'll kill you. Yeah. Hmm. I, You know, I backed away slowly. Then as soon as I got away, I fucking ran down back and switch from a bow to a gun but i didn't go back out and hunt though i just stayed in the truck i was just like that nice and of course everybody was just like man I, if that bear would have came up on me i would have shot it with the bow or my handgun or something like that it's like you say that i would have said that exact same thing if this didn't happen but the fact that you're out there and now you're vulnerable and that happens your whole mindset changes yeah survival instincts kick in and you just want to survive yeah and you gotta think of what officer Hendricks saw Yes, he could have gone down there. He could have risked his life, gave his life, and then everyone would be saying that he's a hero. But he, he looked at the picture. This guy was all the way down at the other end of the hallway. There was already bullet holes and shit coming down the hallway. Security guards already hurt. You know, he, go, he starts walking down that hallway. He's, he's dead. So, I mean, it's tough. It really is. Mm. But yeah, he, he, got, he got the blame, I guess, for that. And he was fired. Well, thank you for the nice story, Daniel, making it personal. You pissing in the woods. I like that. Yeah, I liked your story. Thank you. I'm glad you're alive. I'm glad you're I alive. I love you. And I'm proud of you. Thank you. All right. Anyways, in our next uh, Strange Fact and Finding, the Mandalay Hotel corporate owners sued the victims of the attack, saying they were not responsible for the shootings and that the security for the concert was. The concert security is certified for terrorism, and Mandalay felt that it was the security team's responsibility, not theirs. What a bunch of dicks, dude. Oh, that is such a dick move. Yeah. Such a dick move. Mm. Mm-hmm. All right. So those are the strange facts and findings. So now we're going to roll into theories. This first theory is a pretty good one. So this theory is that Stephen Paddock worked for the CIA or FBI as an arms dealer. Paddock was undercover and selling guns to terrorists out of the hotel rooms. These weapons would then be taken back to the terrorist hometowns, distributed, and used, into, used in attacks. This would allow the CIA or FBI to effectively track the locations of the terrorists. After selling guns to terrorists for a while, 
Paddock was able to get a leader of one of the terrorist group to come to Vegas so that he could show him what he could supply him. But actually, it was a sting operation by the CIA FBI who planned to arrest the terrorist leader. The terrorist leader arrived in Paddock's suite with two to three bodyguards. The CIA and FBI attempted to arrest him and a gunfight erupted. The individuals with the CIA and FBI were killed and then Paddock was shot in the head by the terrorists. They then decided to take the guns, break the windows, and open fire down below as retaliation. Both terrorists were shot as the police entered the second area of the room. And this was the reason for the uh, accidental gunshots that went off when they entered the second room. The FBI and CIA come in, tell the police officers to not say a word about any of this. They take the terrorists outside as well as the men. They frame Paddock for the entire thing to cover up that they were selling guns to terrorists. But not only any regular guns, but actual machine guns. Now, why do I say machine guns? We have an audio clip we're going to play of an AR with a bump stock and then a straight up machine gun. What was it like an M60 or whatever? Uh, so we're going to play that and the fur and I'll pause it in between and tell you which one is which. The first clip you're going to hear is the uh, an audio clip of the Las Vegas shooting, which is 10 rounds a second, which is 600 RPMs. So we're going to play that right now. All right, so that was the Las Vegas shooting. Now you're going to hear the firing of an AR-15 with a bump stock on it. Okay, now this is 14 rounds a second at 800 RPM. Now listen to this one. Now you're going to hear the Las Vegas shooting again. Now you're going to hear an M240 belt-fed machine gun. All right. Las Vegas shooting. Oh, shit. Seriously, I don't know what's going on. M240 machine gun. Wow. I like that they compared the audio tracks of the two at the end. The machine gun and the Las Vegas shooting sound. Yeah, the M240 machine gun in the Las Vegas, they they have very similar audio structures to them. Mm -hmm. I think it was an M240 that was used, a belt-fed M240. After hearing the sound of the bump stock, that was way faster than what was going off. In my mind, I heard it be way faster of bullets coming out than what the Las Vegas shooting had. Yeah, so it would make sense that if they were selling... M240 machine guns to terrorists illegally that they'd want to cover that up or selling guns to terrorists at all, you know. So that's just a little, little knowledge nugget, nice little theory, you know, with a little kind of like uh, audio to back it up. Well, and on top of that, the amount of guns he had would have created a stakeout for a very long time. One guy trying to shoot a hundred weapons, and he it sounded like he pretty much stuck to one kind of gun. He shot the AR-10 eight times, if I'm not mistaken. Like, he had two separate guns, so he shot four rounds from two different AR-10s, which is super weird. Why not just take the same gun over to the window? But whatever, what do I know? I'm not a 
I don't do mass shootings, but yeah, it would further make me believe that he was selling those and that's why he had so many in there because one person doesn't need all those different guns for what he was doing. He just needed ammunition. All right. What did you link us, Dan? All right. So watching the video, for some reason, I don't believe that's the right bump stock or bump stock that, that they were comparing. So I found another video and this guy uses a bump stock. All right, so we're going to listen to that right now. Just that little small clip of what that sounded like sounds totally different from the other video. The other one actually sounded like a three-round burst to me, almost. Hmm. My question is, how can you be so accurate with that damn thing? Watching it in slow motion, that bump stock, how can someone be so accurate? I don't even think it's meant to be accurate. I don't think he was very accurate. He had 22,000 people to hit, and he only, I don't want to say only in a, in a negative way, but like he hit a thousand, let's say less than a thousand out of 22,000. So I would say he wasn't super accurate. Hmm. Okay. Even though I do find it super weird that he had the trajectory of his bullets written down, but didn't have how he calculated it. He doesn't seem like a guy who would know that. Maybe he goes to the gun range to practice shooting, but he doesn't didn't come off to me as a guy who was like ex-military. Yeah, I mean, and plus he might have had the trajectory right, but when you start going with like a bump stock or something like that, the recoil is going to move. So pretty much your aim is now off. So now he was probably had the sights and everything set in correctly for that distance, and then he just rained hell upon them. Either way, it's fucked up and. I'm not a big fan of bump stocks. Yeah. I've never used one. I love guns, but I'm not a fan of bump stocks. All right. Let's go to the next theory. So there is this really good bit shoot video that goes over different witnesses that talk about their experience there. And there were accounts from the Tropicana, the Bellagio, Planet Hollywood, that all said that there was a shooter closer to their vicinity than the Mandalay Bay. Uh, I think it was the Bellagio. The lady said that the windows were shot out in the front and then they didn't allow people to go into the lobby anymore um, and she completely shut it off until they got it all cleaned up. Probably hiding some evidence, I would assume. Uh, the Tropicana, there was a couple there that kept talking about how they could see muzzle fire way closer. Many people discussed how you know the difference between if you've been in gunfight, you know the difference between aerial shooting and bullets that are on a horizontal plane. And a lot of people would say that you can hear the ones coming from the Mandalay Bay, but you could also hear them coming horizontally at you at ground level. So I recommend watching this video to get some really good ones. But if you start digging, you're going to see a lot of people that talk about how many... There's so many people that say that there was somebody else, at least one other person. There is rumors that there was someone on the fourth floor of the Mandalay Bay, but I couldn't find anything to kind of back that up. Um, I saw a video, but it looked to me like there was a light reflecting from just like a Vegas light. It wasn't a muzzle flash in my mind. Yeah, I went digging for additional videos earlier that day, and somebody had... Before the shooting even occurred, like hours before it, somebody had was filming something at a pool and went up and you could see the fourth floor and see a light. 
And I was like, okay, that clears that up. Talking about the people that were in the Tropicana and the Bellagio, they will hands down. Everyone around there will tell you that something happened in their hotel as well. Planet Hollywood, they heard gunshots within a half mile radius. Um, and that was from even from inside. This lady has a report about how she was playing the slots and she could hear gunshots over the sounds of all the casino noises going on. And I mean, the strip is condensed, if you will, but there's still a good distance between these places. And so for them to also be hearing and seeing gunshots in their area makes it suspicious that there was more than one person. Yeah. What else was there about them? I'm trying to remember. Was it... Dan, do you remember if it was the Tropicana, right, that the the SWAT team was in? Yep, it was Tropicana. So there's another video of what reports say are a SWAT team that were doing a sweep of the Tropicana minutes after the shooting happened. The thing that makes this video suspicious is, for one, they are walking in a group. There's like six of them. And they're not wearing the same uniform. They don't have the same guns. They have their guns up, pointing them at civilians in the casino. And then there are plainclothes guys in the back, two of them, if I'm not mistaken. One's holding like a a, suit, a briefcase. And they seem like... It reminds me of a movie, to be honest, when you're they're trying to make... Uh, like the Italian job. They're trying to make their way through the casino before they get seen. And you can hear audio of... You don't know if it's the person in the crowd or a civilian, but someone says that the cops are coming and that they need to get out of there quick. So, and the gun from one of the main, the front gunmen was a Middle Eastern weapon. So, so really suspicious stuff. So there were reports of Solomon of Saudi Arabia, who's the king of Saudi Arabia, was actually there in Vegas. And princes of Saudi Arabia had known to go to Vegas and dress totally normal and have bodyguards dress totally normal as well. Kind of like undercover as the bodyguards is like their friends. So they don't bring any attention to themselves because they have gone to Vegas. They have gambled. Right. Somebody posted something on the form uh, on 4chan, which I know everybody's like uh, 4chan. But here's the thing. They said Solomon. That's King Solomon of Saudi Arabia in the video. And what happened was is that some terrorists went to go purchase guns. It went bad, like we talked about earlier, but they went down and the whole goal was to find Solomon and kill him. And it was orders from Al-Wahid bin Tahali, who is like a guy in Saudi Arabia who is uh, like a businessman and he's a member of the Saudi royal family. But he wanted Solomon dead. So that he could take over and that once uh, authorities caught wind that Bintahali's goons, which were the ones that were buying the weapons, were coming down to kill Solomon because he wasn't in his hotel room or that the men scouting out for him that were going down there to kill him were engaged by special forces who were King Solomon's people that were guarding him. And that's why there was reports on the Strip and other hotels of gunfire. And that's also why the hotel and the entire city went on lockdown. So that could make sense. I mean, 
Al-Wahid bin Tahali is very corrupt, and he always wants to, you know, always been vocal about taking over. So, Watching that video on YouTube, one of the comments said that actually kind of fascinates me. He said, cop had a mohawk. Looks more like Blackwater to me. The private, uh... Private contractors, yeah. Yeah. I don't think cops are allowed to have mohawks. No. No, and sure enough, like, now that I watch it, the second guy on the left has a mohawk. Yeah, I'm looking for the the bitch shoot video I'd seen. Oh, at the very end of the video, one of the comments say, if you turn the volume up all the way and listen, the guy in civilian clothes has a walkie-talkie, so he's communicating to somebody else. And at the very end, they said, if you listen carefully, you can hear him say, all right, we're breaking off now. So they're breaking off from that group, going somewhere else, because they actually go in a different direction than where the other group's going. Hmm. Very weird. Yeah, the two in the back, like the one dude's holding that case up to his chest, and the other guy's kind of in a suit as well. What's that guy have in his hand that he has like up to his chest? Oh, it's a walkie-talkie. That's the walkie-talkie. Yep. You're right, I heard him say we're breaking off right now, and the guys that are in the, um, that have the case and the guy with the suit go off to the right while the military people, quote-unquote, keep going straight. On the main walkway. Yep, sure enough, dude. He did say it. All right. Y'all ready to continue with the next theory? Mm-hmm. There's so much crazy shit with this. <laughs> yeah, I could see why it was so requested as well now. Yeah. So there's a theory that Valium was the reason Stephen Paddock went off the wall and started shooting. In his autopsy, it states that they found elevated levels of Valium in his blood. And then what's this link to? Las, confirmed Las Vegas shooter on benzos. This website pretty much goes into detail about the three metabolites that were found in his toxicology report of the Las Vegas shooter of, of Stephen Paddock. And then I also have a link to the FIO documents that were released of Stephen Paddock's actual autopsy report that goes over everything. Um, and I'll have a link to that. And I read over that autopsy report, and he does have... Valium in his toxicology report, but nothing really else that was strange. So it's just kind of a theory to toss up. You know, people are always saying, you know, certain type of pharmaceutical medications contribute to mass shooters and that it's always covered up by the pharmaceutical companies, big pharma. So something to think about. All right. Who wants to cover this last theory we have before we get into personal thoughts and theories? Yeah, like some people are saying that this involves the Illuminati because as we have talked about, Masonic Rite only goes to 32 levels and you have to be bestowed 33rd level. And so this is just, this is an interesting connection, I suppose you could say. So Stephen Paddock was on the 32nd level when he did all this. It was also right next to the Luxor Hotel, which is a giant pyramid, and then there's an obelisk there. And there's even a meme that was going around that said, no matter what the government tells you, just know this. The shooter was on the 32nd floor next to the Great Pyramid and Obelisk. Well known to be Freemason, was this an Illuminati sacrifice? I mean, this is like the whole up for interpretation. There's a lot of interesting coincidences there. 
But we know pyramids are a huge symbol of the Illuminati. Um, I don't know what their purpose would have been in it, but I think it's a cool rabbit hole for some people to go down and see if they could find more connections. I like it. I like it a lot. All right. All right, Aaron, you ready? You ready for your personal thoughts and theories? Yeah. Are we rolling to that now? We're rolling to personal thoughts and theories. I'm down for it. I think so. All right. Mine is sim- my personal thought and theory behind all this is similar to our first theory that we covered. It's a little bit different, though. OK, I pieced together some things. I titled this Deep Undercover. OK, so Stephen Paddock was an FBI agent or an asset that was deep undercover. He was posing as an arms dealer. The plan was to get Paddock to supply guns to ISIS linked terrorists. Then they could track the terrorists back to their cell and make arrests, just like the first one, uh, first theory, right? The extravagant lifestyle that Paddock lived as a gambler and high roller was the cover provided by the FBI, who also funded his activities and even provided the guns. This is why he didn't care if he lost $100,000 or a million. It was all FBI money. So on October 1st, 2017, Paddock made contact with two terrorists and agreed to sell them 23 guns, all outfitted with bump stocks for auto fire. The deal was going to go down in his room on the 32nd floor. Stephen was waiting for the terrorists to arrive, but all things went to hell. First, the terrorists were spotted by the security guard, Jesus Campos, who found them suspicious. When confronted by the security guard, the two terrorists shot Campos and ran into Paddock's room. There were FBI surveillance teams monitoring the arms deal, but as soon as they heard the shots that the terrorists shooting Campos, radio silence was broken and the terrorists learned that it was an FBI setup. The terrorists then killed Paddock. Now, they were left with two choices. They knew damn well that they couldn't carry all the guns out of the hotel, especially with Campos being shot and probably raising the alarm throughout the hotel. So they could either run, or since they had the guns already, they could cause some destruction and terror by firing on the crowds at the concert. Shooting seemed like a good idea to them because it would create unbelievable confusion and chaos in the whole area, which would allow them to escape undetected. So they shoot out the windows and start firing. Now, this is part is crucial. When you listen to the bursts of fire from the recordings of the crowd, you notice that there's very long pauses between bursts. Why is this? Why would Paddock take so long to change or reload guns when he is experienced enough to own dozens of them? When he supposedly prepared for days for this shooting, it is because Paddock is not the one shooting. It is because these terrorists have no idea how to use the guns properly. They have no idea where the extra magazines are. They are unfamiliar with changing cartridges. This explains perfectly why the pauses between the bursts were minutes instead of seconds, as would be expected if Paddock was shooting. So now the FBI is in panic mode, right? Imagine if it got out that a failed FBI sting operation was responsible for the deaths of innocent people. What would happen? The entire FBI organization would be torn down pretty much. So the only thing that they can do is immediately take Campos into custody to stop him from giving interviews about what he saw, which is what happened. 
They set the room up to look like Paddock killed himself. They take a picture and anonymously leak it, which isn't something we talked about, but the pictures of Paddock's body was anonymously leaked on 4chan, by the way. So that's another high five to 4chan. And uh, it was anonymously leaked, so people can see that it was indeed Paddock in that room, so there'd be no questioning. And then they'd plant evidence like trajectory diagrams to further their narrative. The two terrorists were then apprehended and immediately put into cars and driven to a dark site where they will never be heard from again. And that's my, uh, that's my theory about the whole thing. Damn. Did I go too deep? No. Just the way I like it. Oh, nice. You just went deep undercover. I love, I love that theory. I think it was really good tying a lot of things together. The one thing that I would rebuttal about the breaks is, could those be the times where Paddock had to fight off inside his, uh, like, Campos coming or his new security? These moments where we're hearing of the uh, breaching on the inside, he's dealing with that on top of shooting out to the crowd. So that's why the breaks are longer. Yeah, it could be that, or, I mean... Could have been a combination of that and changing of the magazines. Mm-hmm. Another thing I, I thought about while you were saying that, did you guys also find this, that Jesus Campos was not registered to be a security guard in Las Vegas? Did not know that. No, I did not come across that. There's something that was stating that when you looked him up, he wasn't registered and you have to be in the in the county. Hmm. Well... I swear, every time you tell a theory, it just, like, pushes me off the one I was on. But I'll still go with the one I like for this is the CIA being involved and it's and Stephen was an arms dealer uh, working for the CIA slash FBI. Because that does make a lot of sense on why he have, he'd have so many guns. I mean, the amount of guns he had in his room, just Waco could have used that much gunpowder. This is one guy. I just don't understand. You could only do so much as one person. And this is assuming that it's just Stephen in this room specifically. I do think that there was more than one gunfire, gun distraction. There wasn't just the Mandalay Bay that was getting shot out of. I believe that uh, kind of how we talked about with the security guards or the undercover security SWAT type people, that they could have easily have shot off some rounds to distract people, get them running away so that they can easily navigate through the chaos of Las Vegas at, at that time. I love your part of your theory about using that as a distraction for the terrorists shooting from Mandalay Bay if it wasn't Steven. Because that would be the best distraction. So many people in Vegas, they they don't know what to do in that situation. I mean, they proved it in the whole scenario on how they reacted to it. Waiting so long to get in there, into the room. I mean, it's always good to have backup, but when you have a gunman shooting on 20,000 people, you're going to want to get in there as soon as possible. So, just with the cache of guns and how his family's connected, to so much weird shit, his brother not getting charged for child porn, uh, his dad being arrested and getting off after being on the FBI wanted list for 10 years. It's just all really suspicious to me. So I think there's some connection there 
with the family and the FBI slash CIA. Oh, for sure. I like that. All right, Dan, what do you got for us? Daniel, your time has come. All right, from my findings. I'm honestly thinking this could be a, hate to say it, a move towards gun ban, like bump stock ban. For one, you don't need that many guns. A lot of the guns are the same type of guns, but the same type of bump stock. So why would you need that many guns to shoot like that? So yeah, say there is multiple shooters. There's multiples of the same gun. You're not going to have to put a new clip in a gun with that many guns in there. You have the, multiple of the same guns, multiple of the ammo, multiple of the bump stocks. They could have just picked up another rifle and just kept going. The breaks in between shots, I think that's because he would shoot and then he went and go check his live feed of the hallways and stuff because it looked like uh, he didn't have the, the laptop in the same area where he was shooting. So he would walk over to where he had the laptop set up to check it to make sure that no one was there yet. Then he went back to go shooting again. Like I said, like there's just no reason to have that many guns to do that. And if you look, they are sprawled out all over the place. I can understand there's two windows broken. Maybe two, three guns at each window. Maybe. But he brought that many, that much like ammo and clips and all that. So it just doesn't make sense. That More than likely, that's just to show like he had like an armory, which it does show that you know, he could have been selling the shit, working for him, working for FBI or CIA. But more is like, it's just like, because I know that like during that time, they were like trying to do the gun ban stuff. I think it wasn't there. And then, you know, not long, not long ago, they tried, tried it again. But they did, they did get the bump stocks banned, especially because of this incident. And I mean, that's rightfully so. But it's just, you know, and then the fact that he was able to send money off and take care of his family and all that, you know, maybe that was part of the deal. You do this for us and all that, we'll make sure they're taken care of. No, no charges on anybody. They'll live a happy life. Your, your girlfriend in the Philippines, mm. she'll be taken care of. Don't worry about charges against her. Even though she probably loaded some of the shit for you and then left the fucking country. Yeah, that's true. Literally, the, the one thing that really, really, really confuses me was the breathing apparatus. Yeah. Have you seen the pictures of it? That is weird. No, uh-uh. All right, here. Here's a link. I'm looking at this thing. That is not for someone to fucking escape and go underwater or anything. That thing, I can't tell what it's connected to, but it is just a long-ass fucking blue hose with a snorkel mouthpiece taped to the end of the hose. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Okay. Is it attached to the hot tub or the bathtub? That right, that middle thing right there is supposed to be like a couch of some kind, but I don't think it's a bathtub. The fuck? Hold up. That middle thing isn't a tub? No, it's, that's cushion inside of it. Okay. What if he did this for tear gas or preparing for them to smoke him out? That's pretty good. I didn't even think of that. Even though it'll burn his eyes and all that, but he'll still be able to breathe. Yeah. And he might have had something to do to cover his eyes. Like maybe he knew a wet towel. These little tricks, but he's like, I still have to be able to breathe though. Yeah, because like I'm looking at the images, but like if you go to the, which, 22 of 32, you'll see that he has a laptop set up on one of the service carts that's inside the door connected. So that's probably why I think he took breaks to go check that real quick to make sure no one's sneaking up on him. That's a good thought, Dan. I didn't see these photos before. I, I just found them. He does have goggles in 19 to 32. He has goggles sitting on his table. He does. 
See, so now that just makes it iffy. This man was prepared to fight. So why would he just kill himself? Hmm. He killed himself with a revolver. And in one of his dad's first arrests, his dad was found with a revolver. So I don't know if that was like an homage to his dad, but when you have all those other weapons in there, you're going to pull out a six-shooter, and that's going to be your weapon of choice to take your own life. Just seemed a little weird. It's an ugly fucking room. It is. Just the layout of it just, I think, is fucking terrible. But I don't know, just, it just some of that shit just doesn't look right. No. Like, so pretty much, I mean, honestly, it kind of throws my idea of the gun ban out saying that he was ready to fight to the death, but then he just ended up killing himself. I mean... Like, this man, he, he could have taken out a lot of those officers if he would have stayed alive. So what was the point in killing himself? If he, he's already taken out that many people... Control. He wanted to control the way he died. He didn't want it to be under someone else's hand. Yeah. That's true. I like that theory, Dan. I like your theory a lot. It kind of works, but then again, just a lot of those photos just kind of debunks it. And then just like his vehicle, like it was like he was set up to go all out. So I'm trying to figure out what why he would have put a hose on the sofa unless what he did was thought about the sofa as a filtration device because it's just got material in it and that he would be able to breathe that. It wouldn't get tainted through the gas in the air because I'm like, why? That's a really weird thing to connect a hose to. Yeah. Unless he has it running underneath of it to where it has like a gap underneath. Fresh air, maybe? If you look at picture 8 of 32, it looks like it's attached to the upper part of it. And then you see it again on 11 of 32. It seems like these pictures were taken in a way to where you can't see everything. Especially like you figured they would have taken pictures of what that hose was connected to. Well, actually, yeah, I'm looking at it now. It's not connected to the couch. It's going over that table and towards that room. If you're looking at 11 of 32, it looks like it attaches right there on the top of the uh, sofa. Oh. If you go back to number eight, you see that white table and how it's going over and draping over that table. And then you follow it when you go back to 11 and you could see it on the ground on the right side of the picture going back towards that bedroom with the door open. You see what I'm saying? What if that hose was running to the other room to where the fresh air and the window broken in there was also there? So if they did attack the main room, he'd have fresh air from the other room. That's why the hose is so long and everything. I like that, Dan. Because that's, that's the only way you get fresh air is open window. Broken window, pretty much. Yeah, it's definitely coming from a separate room. Which I'm still trying to figure out, though. They said that the door that's adjoining both rooms was also sealed. But yet, if it was sealed, why are there guns in that room and a broken window? Right? So, mm. does that mean that there was possibly another shooter or someone else in the other room? It's a good catch there dan well i'm looking at the that picture 11 and it looks like there's a lot of debris on the ground so maybe they did blow those doors right there but you're right why if he sealed it and intended on okay so let's say he was using room number two as a breathing room 
That's why he sealed the door shut, so that way he would get as clean of air from that room as possible while he was stuck in the other room. As if he had planned on dying on this mission. He was going to go all out. Something happened that made him decide it's not worth the gunfight, I'm just going to take myself. I don't know. Maybe, maybe he wasn't a killer. But he was made to do this because of a deal with the CIA people. And so after he started doing it and he was hitting people, and that's why he was hesitant with his shots, because he's like, I'm actually doing this. Oh my god, I'm actually having to do this. And he's noticing he's knocking people down, killing them, shooting them. And he was meant to fight it out more and kill more of the Las Vegas Police Department. And he just killed himself to get out of it because it was just too much. All right. So if you go to picture 19 of 32 real quick, it should be the picture of the table with the goggles on it and the drill in the chair and all that. Mm-hmm. Look at the boxes. Those are bullet, bullet boxes, cases of bullets, pretty much. So he was loading his own ammo there. So why would his girlfriend's fingerprints be on it when he's doing all the loading himself, it seems like? That's a good question. Maybe she was there and maybe that was the woman that ran down and said, you're all going to die tonight. Shit. I like that connection. Oh, Mary Lou. Mary Lou. You got paid and you fucking snitched. I'm just kidding. Yeah. Well, I wonder if that girl who did the witness account saying some lady came and said that was silenced. And that's why she hasn't come out to say it was a Filipino lady that came out and said that, because that would immediately tie Mary Lou to this. Yeah. Oh, shit. So many questions, so many unanswered things. You know he had a side bitch that they called Kate. He did have a side bitch. I I mean, they showed the text messages between them, and she said she was going to go, but she didn't end up going to go see him, because he's like, it's not worth it, your time, just don't come. And maybe there's more to the story that we don't know. And she went to the festival and was like, you guys, we're all going to die tonight. Like, we got to get out of here. And security was like, that's Steven's side bitch. Let's get her out of here. God, I hope they said that too. Guys, <laughs> that Steven's side bitch right there tried to save everyone, but no. <laughs> Shit. That's crazy, though. Like, like, like so many questions, so many unanswered ones. And we didn't really even get into some topics because they, I mean, this is already a long episode. All right. Well, I love it all. And uh, I guess that wraps up today's episode for the most part. And uh, I want to thank you, both of you, for helping with all the research. This is a giant topic. And uh, I know it was requested a lot, and I hope it satisfied everybody's needs. All right, so now we're going to go to Hans on the scene. If you aren't familiar with Hans on the scene, it's where our on-the-scene reporter Hans goes out to the public and gets the public's opinion on certain conspiracy happenings. So we have one this week, and we're going to play that right now. So what are some conspiracy theories you do believe in? Conspiracy theory on these missing kids and shit and adrenal chrome. Okay. Right. I didn't know you knew anything about the adrenal chrome. Oh, yeah. I, I know. I've heard a lot of this shit you're talking about. You know, I just read an article. I don't dig in deeper than what the article says. You know, I've, I've heard, at least heard of a lot of the shit you're talking about. Now, the adrenal chrome, I've dug into that and the missing kids a little more because it pisses me off really bad. 
9-11 was an inside job, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was a new world order from start to set up. No, no, the coronavirus is man-made. Coronavirus is man-made. It's a, it's a new world conspiracy to make us conform. Shit, I don't understand. See what they push us to do. Yeah, that Wright-Patterson's Air Force Base is crazier than Area 51. I haven't heard that. No? Yeah, that's where they took the bodies to, apparently. Instead of rotten, wherever. Yeah. New Mexico. Yep. Well, see, now, that years ago, they had a, uh, it was a weekly show called Project Blue Book? No. Well, anyway, it was about Project Blue Book, and each episode was yeah. you know, something they chased down as a UFO sighting. But I don't But it makes sense being that the Project Blue Book was based on it. Yep. Ryan Patterson's Air Force Base. And that's the end of the On the Scene. Ooh, we got a lot of good discussion points on that one. Yeah. Hey. It seemed like that individual that he interviewed would... Seems like he already listened to the podcast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I really enjoyed that interview. Thank you, Hans. I uh, love you, and I hope you're doing well. Yeah, love you, Hans. Yes, Hans, you know I love you. Thank you for that. Yeah, thank you for the postcard as well with the cowboy butts on it. Really enjoyed that. Man. Ooh. All right. So now we're going to move on to voicemails. We have a lot of voicemails this week, and we will not be able to get to all of them. So, uh, of course, uh, whichever ones we don't get to, we'll play to next week. We'll play on next week's, okay? So the first voicemail this week comes from Kamaruski. And we're going to play that one right now. Hey guys, Kamaruski here. Uh, I want to talk to you guys about these uh, Tic Tac videos. And uh, I've seen one. I've seen one. I didn't know what it was until I saw that video. And I realized now that's that's what I saw. You know, movements, everything like that. This area I saw them in. You know, you have White Sands Missile Range. You have Holloman Air Force Base. There's even a NASA test facility there. And, uh, you know, so rationally my brain goes towards Bob Lazar and how these are ours and we're testing them and this and that. But my soul feels like these are aliens, you know, especially with, uh, with my experiences with DMT and all the crazy shit I've seen there. And yeah, I just wanted to share that with you guys and, um, tell you what a good job you're doing. You know, Aaron, keep up the good work, man. You're a badass leader. Danielson, keep up the search for Bigfoot. Hard work usually pays off. Anna, the beauty in your soul gives me those good vibrations, if you know what I mean. Above all, stay safe, stay healthy, stay weird, and always remember that love conquers all. Thank you, Kamaruski. Uh, I don't consider myself a leader, but thank you for all the kind words. And yes, I have seen the Tic Tac videos. Uh, I first, I thought he said Tic Talk. That's what I thought. And then first. I thought he was talking about the app Tic Talk. And I was like, what the fuck? Then I realized, oh, the Tic Tac UFOs videos that were released by the government. But yeah, those are very, uh, very interesting videos. And I don't know why a lot of other people aren't talking about them because it's huge, huge, mm-hmm. huge. So huge. But yeah. Thank you for the kind words for sure. Much love. Kamaruski, you know how to speak to my heart. Dude, that was so kind. For real, that's the best kind of compliment to get. So thank you so much. I'm glad that you feel 
my vibration from here. Um, I'll keep sending them your way, and thank you so much for the love and the support uh, for the show. You're amazing. Your soul is beautiful. Keep shining your bright white light for everyone else to see. Nice. Thank you. We love you. We do love you. On to the next voicemail, which is from Chaz the Spaz. Oh. And we're going to play that one right now. Hey, Third Kinders. My name is Chastity from Arizona. And I wanted to say that I am now a Patreon member and I am loving every second of it. Um, if you guys don't have Patreon, what are you doing? Do it. It's the best. It's great. I am saving the Clinton body count um, episode for last because I think I'm going to enjoy it the most. So I'm hyping myself up for it. Very excited. Um, I do have a, rec- a suggestion uh, or a request for an episode about the prohibition of psychedelics. Um, in the 70s and how they were kind of linked with the protesters of the Vietnam War. And I get the feeling that somebody made them illegal so that way we didn't expand our minds and get to a higher form of consciousness. So, I don't know. I feel like that would be a really interesting episode. You guys kind of touched on it with Manson and the LSD. I'm listening. You guys are great. Uh, Bigfoot 2020. Anna, you are such a great add to the group. I'm so happy you're here. And Aaron, thanks for starting this podcast. You've opened my mind to new possibilities. And Danielson, you're awesome. You're all great. Thank you so much for doing what you do. Bye. Nice. Well, thank you, Chastity, for those kind words. Oh, my goodness. You are awesome. Thank you for calling in and... uh, talking with us uh the psychedelic the psychedelic conversation totally a good one to open up to we'll probably have to look into something like that for season three we are pretty solid for the rest of the season but thank you so much we love you yeah thank you chastity i appreciate the voice message i'm glad you're listening and uh, i know you're listening by your references to past episodes the prohibition of psychedelics i truly believe in the same thing that you believe in banned due to them not wanting us to have the ability to reach some type of higher consciousness or thinking. You know, they want us to keep us dumbed down and that psychedelics allow for individuals to have more of a free thought rather than follow the leader type of thought. So it's something we could really get into. But yeah, like Anna said, we're pretty booked up for the rest of season two. So it will definitely be on the season three list because I really love talking about psychedelics. But I appreciate you. Maybe we should do some. Oh, show. Oh, yeah, I'm down for as an experiment for the psychedelic episode in season three. Proper research. Yeah, absolutely, for scientific research. We got to fact check all this stuff. (laughs) All right, love you. Yep, thank you for the kind words. Much love. All right. So the next voicemail did not give their name, but I gave them the name of the Joker because that's what they sounded like. So we're going to play that one right now. Hello. I just want to say thank you to you guys. Because ever since I was a kid, I always believed in a Sasquatch and aliens. And as I grew up, I just kept believing in it more and more and more. Just 
just like that Britney Spears song, Gimme, Gimme More. That's exactly what I want. More Sasquatches and more aliens. I want more. And because you guys, I get to have all of it in one podcast. Now, you think it was fun growing up? No, because everyone made fun of me for liking those things. But you know what? I did not care. I kept on liking those things, and I don't give a shit what anyone thinks. Well, thank you, Joker, um, for the voicemail. That's right. Continue liking things and don't care about what other people think. Because it's you who has to live with yourself, not other people. So why seek appreciation from them when you need to seek appreciation from inside yourself? Mm-hmm. To love others, you must first love yourself. Truth. But um, yeah, I, I would also like to comment and say that you're probably what? Related to Nicolicious, that you're somehow related to Nicolicious in some form or fashion? I don't know. Just a guess. But thank you for the voicemail and I love you. We miss Nicolicious. Come back to us. Just another Friday night. Mm-hmm. I will say, if you were trying to do an impersonation of the Joker, you did a damn good job, my friend. And as long as you are a part of this community, we can ensure that you're never alone. There's always somebody, especially if you get on Discord, there's always someone to talk to, and you will always feel like you're part of the family. Thank you so much. I hope you get more Bigfoot in your life. Much love. Yeah, hopefully we can provide more Bigfoot and everything that you just seem to desire on our podcast. You keep supporting. We'll keep popping out episodes. Much love. Much love. All right. The next voicemail we have is from Kieran M. We're going to play that right now. Hey, guys. Um, this is Kieran from County Down in the north of Ireland. Um, just want to say that I've been listening to the podcast for about three months now. Um, never got around to doing this before, but um, all three of you have brilliant personalities. Um, you put so much work into the research and you're all very funny as well. And it's nice to hear a podcast where the presenters do not sound robotic and they inject their own humor into things. So, um, I personally deal with a lot of anxiety and panic disorder. Um, so the podcast gives me something to focus on when I'm like going out for walks or, or driving and stuff. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's great entertainment, but thought provoking as well. So kudos, um, to Anna, do not listen to the hate that you get. It's bullshit. And you bring your own personality and you have a you have a great voice as well so please excuse my voice right now because i've got a really heavy cold but um i think that the show's great and keep up the good work love you well i must say it didn't sound like you had much of a cold there but i hope you're feeling better uh thank you for the love and i say the same thing screw those haters Because you guys give me so much love that whatever those negative comments go in one ear and out the other. So thank you so much. You're amazing. Appreciate you calling in and that uh, you've been holding on three months strong. (laughs) 
we will keep throwing out that we'll keep throwing out episodes for you and thank you so much i love you too man yeah definitely thank you for the voicemail and you know i'm glad that we can help out in some way and that you enjoy listening to us it's awesome to, it's awesome to hear from a caller from ireland too mm-hmm. just getting calls from all over just makes me so happy i know but yeah thank you thank you for the voicemail man much love and i hope you hope you get over your cold but thank you kieran yeah uh Thank you for the voicemail. Thank you for the love. We sent it right back to you. Uh, I suffer from anxiety as well, so I can understand where you're coming from. Uh, like Anna said, there's always people up in Discord to help you out if you need to talk to anybody. And uh, I'm glad we can kind of provide you with the outlet to kind of get your mind right with or whatever, you know, that you can kind of use as a getaway, you know, to kind of relieve some of that anxiety. But thank you again for the voicemail. And uh, I love you and I'm proud of you. All right, so now we're going to move on to the next voicemail, which is from Cody S. And we're going to play that one right now. What's up, you sexy sons of bitches? Anna, we need a safe word. This whole ball gag thing took me forever to get out. And next time, don't tie me up. It was fun, but don't tie me up. But anyway, I wanted to know if you guys have ever looked into this thing called the map. And I've got the map itself. I can send you guys a picture to it, of it on uh, Discord. But it's a conspiracy theorist dream laid out on a sheet of paper. It has everything that's been going on in the world now, previous, what could be going on in the future. Um, it brings in a lot of the desensitizing that you guys have talked about with all UFOs and um, things that are going on and if you look into some of the movies that have been created in the past years um, about desensitizing people to things that are what really is out there versus what the government and Illuminati want people to know, it's pretty, pretty interesting. But I'll hear you guys on the podcast. Love you guys, and I'm proud of you. Thank you, Cody. I love you too, and I'm proud of you too. And yeah, I seen that. Uh, I've seen that map before. I think it's been linked to us a couple times. I love it. I love looking at it. Could spend hours, you know, writing stuff down from it. But I thank you, and I love you. Yeah, I would say post it again on Discord. So yeah. people can get a good look at it. Yeah the uh, the awakening map. That it's funny you mentioned that, Cody, because yesterday I went and bought a poster version of that to put in my house because I think it's one of those things that you can look at over and over and over again and you're always going to find new things in it and I can imagine getting high one day and just looking at my map and trying to figure out something that I researched on the podcast connecting to something that's on the map and then it's amazing. So I'm I'm glad that you're bringing it to people's attention. Like Dan said, post it in the Discord so we can keep spreading uh, that wisdom around. And we do need to discuss the safe word. I'll add that to my checklist when I take people on the Montauk chair. So, oof. Let's throw some around. We can say kneecaps if you'd like. I like that one. That's a good one. But I will also put in your notes that you don't like to be tied up. And we will find something else. 
So thank you so much for finally calling in. I always wondered what your voice sounded like, but you're amazing. Thank you for being so supportive. I love you, Cody, and you have yourself an awesome day, dude. Nice. Yeah, thank you for the voicemail. And I'm glad, glad you finally got untied and got that ball gag out. <laughs> I mean, hope you at least got to keep it for a souvenir. But yeah, thank you for the voicemail. Much love, man. Much love. All right, so now we're going to roll on to the last voicemail of this week, and this is from The Wolf. Oh. And we're going to play that right now. Hey, guys, I listened to your podcast for the first time when I was in the middle of doing some research on the disappearance of Kelly Wilson. Um, I really enjoyed it. It was great. Um, However, I was shocked and amazed that there is little to no coverage of any kind that pertains to the megalith, potentially, of ancient origin that is in the vicinity of Gilmer, Texas. And uh, it actually can be seen from above, from satellite. Um, And uh, this is going to sound like horse shit, but uh, I've been there. And uh, there's, if you don't believe me, there is a video on YouTube that's pretty obscure. It's called Standing Stones of Gilmer, Texas. And I would encourage you to look those up, and uh, I could potentially even show you where the location is, but uh, I prefer to remain anonymous due to uh, this is uh, this is bigger than anyone probably knows uh, or understands. And is the disappearance of Kelly Wilson tied to these uh, stones, the ancient megalith? Maybe, maybe not, but uh, it is certainly certainly provocative thanks for your time i know we thought we mentioned them we didn't go deep into them though yeah we mentioned them i'm pretty sure we did because i remember coming across them when doing our research yeah but thank you wolf for that voicemail and bringing that to our attention again i love you and i'm proud of you for bringing that to us but yeah the standing stones look just like stonehenge except they're in texas it was very close by to where uh kelly wilson went missing and uh that family that looked like they did those rituals and shit. Forgot the name of the family. There's a post I'm looking at. Somebody said that their grandma always told them about a place in the woods known locally as the Worshipping Stones in Gilmore, Texas, that people would go there and do ancient rituals naked in the middle of the forest. Hmm. This is the first I've seen of them, but I think that that would be interesting to look into. Sounds like it could be correlated in some way. Yeah. Might have to dig dig into that again. Maybe do an episode on that and see what it's all connected to, possibly. Be interesting. Mm, Yeah, it is. Thank you for the voicemail. Love you. Thank you. Yes, thank you for the voicemail. Much love. We'll have to dive back into that some, see what we find. Yeah, thank you, The Wolf. You know, that was a before-my-time episode, but it was a really good one, and I'm glad we caught your attention with it and uh, that we've kept it. Um, We do need to do a bit more of those paranormal-type uh true crime topics because they are so good to discuss but thank you so much wolf i love you man have a good one yep love you all right so that's the end of the voicemails like i mentioned earlier if we didn't play yours this week which we have quite a bit left uh we'll try to get to it next week but we continually get voicemails and i add them to the voicemail not played file and pick out random ones to play for that week so it's nothing personal and we will eventually get to them all right, so now we're going to go on to shout-outs. Um, I don't have any for Instagram this week. Majority of my week was spent 
our last week and this week was spent doing work on the website and everything ready and doing the research for today's topic and the Patreon topic. So I don't have many Instagram shout outs at all, really. So any of y'all got any Twitter or Facebook shout outs? I got a couple, but not many. I have also been busy, so Twitter has not seen my face as often as I'd like it to. But, well, actually, they've never seen my face, but you know what I mean. So, I'm just going to... So, I'll give a shout-out to Rave Norris. She has recently joined us and uh, on the Twitter page, and she's been really hitting us up, so I appreciate you. Um, Alan Manrique. Deloxter8008, No Sir, Jamie is digging for coins. Um, Mama4, Thomas Q, Coach Winston Johnston, Danny O'Rourke. I mean, you guys are all awesome. I appreciate you starting to follow us. DJ Wet Money. Also, Pit Bitch. I saw, I'm sorry I missed you a couple weeks with shout out. So, but I wanted to say I do, I am seeing your post on there. I need to get back up on here and get some shit taken care of, but um, thank you so much for you guys continuing continuing to reach out to me on there. You're all amazing. We appreciate you, and I love you. Nice. Dan, what do you got for us? I only got a couple. All right. I hate to get your name wrong, but I'm just going to call you Stevic. I'm going to go by your last name, Stevic. He's been hitting us up on Facebook. He started listening to us. He did offer some good suggestions on episodes, like uh, the Isda Woman, Gareth Williams, Todd tied to espionage, probably a spy, stuff like that. We give him a shout out. Then uh, Joshua, you know, he hit us up. Just said, just discovered y'all's show on podcast. Love it. Very informative, interesting to listen to on my long nights of working. Keep up the good work. Then he asked, any plans on a video format version of the show? Uh. We've discussed it, but that's pretty much as far as that's gone for a video format. Mm. But then, uh, see, next one, uh, Jake Farm. I'm still waiting on an update from your special day, man. You, you haven't told me if it if it went good or bad. I'm hoping it went good because I haven't heard from you. Yeah, you're gonna be on top of like a mountain. I just want to make sure you weren't pushed off of it or something. Like that's what I'm saying, dude. I'm glad that you said something, Dan, about that. Dude, I've been waiting to hear news because he, t- he told me, he's like, tomorrow's the day. And I'm just like, dude, know, good luck. I know, I know. So Jake Farman, hit me up. Don't make me. Well, that was North Carolina you went to. I was like, if you were still there, don't make me come fucking searching for you. Mm-hmm. You know, we've been getting some requests for an emergency contact list where people from our Discord want to give their information to us. So that way, if like we had a listener go missing, we can reach out to them. Because I'm telling you, everyone's a family on there. And if you haven't showed up for a while, they're starting to wonder where you are. And it's not them being stalker. They're like, hey, it's, this is not like this person to not be here. So it's caring and seeing that they, they're noticing when people aren't there. Yep, absolutely. So get on over to Patreon if you haven't yet. Listen to all of our episodes. Become a third kinder. Become a member. And enjoy it. Mm-hmm. That's right. People come together amazingly on there, and I swear every week there's something in there that hits me in the heart, and we do have people who suffer from depression, um, and so we have a group 
on there for people to talk, and we've had many people reach out on there, and it's overwhelming how many people come together to help each other out on that page. So, as we say, you're not alone, and if you join the Discord, they will make you feel like you're never alone. Absolutely. This is true. So, with that being said, that's the end of our episode today. Uh, I want to thank you all for joining us. And again, thank you for your support. You're amazing, every single one of you. So with that being said, Dan and Anna, you want to roll us out? Sure will. It's okay to be out of this world with your thoughts. Because you're not alone.